Amen. Amen. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Thomas is doing good. That's awesome. <laughs> good morning. And again, it's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. And we're going to continue our first Samuel series in first Samuel, the heart of the matter. If you want to get a head start, first Samuel chapter 25 is where we are going to be today. I just want to say again, from the bottom of my heart, whether you're in person or online, whether this is your first time here or joining us again, one, your family, and two, um, it's just a privilege to serve the Lord alongside of you. Um, I am so thankful, was blown away this past week by how faithfully you served um, our kids and our families, and um, God is working. God worked powerfully this past week, and he's continuing to work. So thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your giving, and um, just thank you for your hearts of worship. And my heart and my ask is that that would continue today as we continue to dig into God's word, worship in the word, worship through giving, If, if you... Um, and worship through song, and God is, God is at work in a big way. Um, I, heard a, I read a quote this week. It was, it was interesting, um, and it made me chuckle and at a time that I needed to chuckle. Um, and it says, sometimes you have to realize that in life, some, taking a step backwards after you take a step forwards, it's not, it's not a disaster. It's just d- dancing the cha-cha. <laughs> And I th- it made me laugh, uh, but the reality is uh, the, all of us are on a journey, are we not? We've seen this in the life of David. We see it in, in our own lives. We see it as we open the front door each and every day in this world, that as we strive and as we pursue, there are going to be days where we take a step forward, and then there are going to be days where we take a step and or two back. The reality is nobody in this room is perfect, um, but we are all, my heart, my prayer is that we are all pursuing Pursuing Christ, pursuing his perfection, pursuing becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. You know, as a, as a parent, this is so visible in, in everyday life where our kids are getting along great uh, for a moment. And then the next minute, it's like an MMA fight over the remote in our living room, right? And maybe that's just my home. As a parent, it's also realized in my own heart where, man, I had a great quiet time this morning, right? And I'm with the Lord and then something goes and I find myself yelling at my kids, Where did that come from? I thought I was good with God. But obviously the fruit, nothing comes out of me that isn't already inside of me. And and as I do this dance, if you would, I realize that there's a long way to go in front of me. But praise God that he has never left me or you. And he's never left David. But we're going to see in the life of David today this reality of this choice about how you can take a step forward one moment And then take a step or two back in another moment. How God's grace is sufficient, but how God uses the reality of his word and biblical community to lead us and guide us along in our path of sanctification and spiritual growth. I don't know how you walked into this room, but the reality is that life is hard, is it not? Life is not fair. Bad things happen because we live in a fallen and a broken and a depraved world. I stand in front of you with a heavy heart. I've had to have multiple conversations and have had the privilege of multiple conversations with multiple families this week walking through tragedy. And questions, I can't answer the why. All I know is to cling to the who. That's God. So how do we react in life when we are wronged by circumstances because we live in a fallen and a broken world? And we just get a deluge of that. 
How do we respond in life when people are offensive to us, when they hurt us, when they wrong us, when they offend us? We're going to see in the text today that David is going to have a choice of how to respond. And frankly, he's not going to respond initially very well. We're going to see in this text a tale of three hearts, the fool, the foolish, and the wise. And the question today is, which are you? Because I think it can vacillate depending on the moment, depending on the time, depending on the circumstance. The fool denies and rejects God. The foolish neglects God. They know God, but they choose to neglect him in the moment because their heart is caught up in something other than God. The wise turns to, trusts in, and advocates for as they depend on God in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Life is not fair. But I pray today that we would continue to learn how to be equipped to walk in wisdom, to walk in faith as we experience the brokenness of the reality and the depravity of the world and our own fallibility to sin. In this life, we will all encounter and experience many difficult situations and frankly, many difficult people, right? And if I say that, somebody's probably already popping you, oh, my boss is, my boss. Frankly, we can be difficult for other people. The question is, how do we respond What is our heart? Because no matter how difficult our external circumstances are, we have the opportunity to experience the internal circumstance of peace as we trust in God, look to God, and rely on God. These are heart-level decisions that determine our daily choices and, frankly, sometimes our daily outcomes. Here's a big idea for today. You'll see it in the text. You'll see it on the screen. You'll see it in your notes. That wisdom focuses on God's preeminence in the face of man's foolishness. Wisdom focuses my heart, my mind, my actions on God's preeminence in the face of man's foolishness, and I would even add my own personal distress. My question for you today is, where is your heart? Where is the focus of your heart? Not, how, not the circumstances of your life, they are hard. And there are seasons where they're joyful. There are seasons where they're very difficult. There are seasons where they're just almost seemingly impossible. But we're going to see that our God is bigger than the impossible today. The focus of your heart drives the priorities of your life and the pursuits of your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for the reality that even in the heavy, we can have victory. Because into the heaviness of our mess and our sin, you came. And you loved us. And you died for us. In the face of the foolishness of men who rejected you, who taunted you, you were silent and you were led like a lamb to a slaughter, giving your life for us. With humility, you purchased our victory. Because you love us. And Father, in these next few moments that we have together, I pray that you would orient our hearts to anchor in that same love and then display that same love, to choose to focus on you. Reveal in us today, God, afresh where we need to change our perspective, where we've gotten out of alignment, where we are acting foolish where we are living as a fool. Forgive us and 
Convict us and then lead us into the goodness of your grace and free us, God. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Open our hearts now and work. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 25, which is where we're going to be today. As we continue chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of 1 Samuel. Read with me, if you would, the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel 25. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. And then David rose, and he went down to the wilderness at Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. And so David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you. And peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have been have, have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time as they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. And when David's young men came and they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and, when they, and then they waited and Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and they came back and told David all of this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Now, what was David's intent? Hop ahead with me to verse 21, 22. We're going to dance around a little bit. Now, David had said, surely in vain, I have guarded all that this fellow Nabal was, has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed, all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David was going to kill every single male in the household of Nabal. This is the word of the Lord. What's happening here is David goes down to Paran, and um, if you remember where we left off last week, David had encountered Saul. And when he encountered Saul in the cave, say Saul and, and in Gedi, Saul wandered into this cave. David had the opportunity to kill Saul. Did he kill Saul? No. He did not kill Saul. He, and, and then he actually said, hey, cut off a corner of, the, of Saul's robe. And then he said to Saul, hey, Saul, by the way, I had the opportunity to kill you, but I didn't because who am I to raise my sword, my hand against the Lord's anointed? Let God be the judge between the two of us, right? And now just a few days later, we see David acting very differently. Samuel has died. Let's not lose sight of that, verse 1. Grief is a powerful emotion. It has an impact on us all, and it might cause us or lead us or make us more susceptible to act potentially in ways that we might not normally do. And after Samuel had died, the whole country came together. David wasn't there, but David rose and he went down to the wilderness of Paran. 
And so today we're going to see two choices that we're called to make when we're wronged. Because in this fallen, broken world, we are wronged all the time, are we not? People sin against us, and we sin against others. But the question is, how can I respond in wisdom? How does the God want me to respond when I'm wronged? And maybe you had an experience this past week where you were wronged at work. It just wasn't fair. You were treated in poorly. You were treated poorly, unfairly, unjustly. Or maybe it was at home. There was just something that happened between you and a family member. Or maybe it was a friend or a neighbor. And you're carrying that baggage and that burden, wondering how am I supposed to respond? And this text is going to teach us how to respond. How to respond in God's wisdom as we look to walk in wisdom. So when I'm wrong, to two ways that we are called to respond in wisdom, two choices on a heart level that we're to make. And if you weren't wronged last week, trust me, you will probably be wrong this week because we live in a sinful world, don't we? The first way to respond is this in wisdom is to respond biblically and not fleshly to difficulty and hostility. It's a heart level choice I need to make to respond biblically and not fleshly, not emotionally, not irrationally to difficulty and hostility. Jesus promises that in this world you will face trouble. People will hate you. They will not be nice to you. Following the Lord, being a disciple means that we walk in the path of our Savior and he was despised, he was rejected, he was misunderstood, he was unfairly treated, he was persecuted, on and on and on. So we as believers, why are we shocked when we are treated that exact same way? On a much lower level, most likely, than what Jesus experienced. We have to count the cost to follow Christ. And we must choose in our hearts today to respond biblically to the offense that will probably come tomorrow. Life isn't fair, but we are called to live in faith. Because fairness would have us living eternity apart from Jesus. Praise God, God looked at us and loved us and died for us when we didn't deserve it. Amen. So David goes down to the wilderness of Paran, and there's a man in, in, in Maon named Nabal. He was incredibly wealthy or rich. Like, think Bill Gates, think Jeff Bezos, think Elon Musk. This guy is loaded. And what we've known and what we've seen back in chapter 23 and part of David's journey was he had spent some time in this area previously. And during that time, him and his men had protected the shepherds and the sheep of Nabal. And so uh, when we encounter this, understand that context, and, but we also have to understand the name of Nabal, as we will see in this text. The word, the name Nabal literally means fool. It literally means fool. Now, parents, I don't know like, what you name your kids and the reasons behind it, but well, names have meaning. Now, how many of us would name our kid fool, right? Well, Nabal's going to live up to that name. And we also are introduced in verse 3 to his wife named Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. The word discerning in the text can also be interpreted as wise. Wise, which is foreshadowing. She's also beautiful. That's also foreshadowing to what will come later throughout this chapter. So we're beginning to get these characters in view. Nabal was harsh, the text teaches us. He was badly behaved. He was a wicked man. He was dishonest in his business dealings, untrustworthy in his character. And we see here that David realizes that it's sheep-shearing season. What that means is that at the end of sheep-shearing season, there's a feast. 
And so David's like, perfect timing. I helped you out last week. Hey, would you invite me into the family? We're basically business associates anyway. I was already looking out for your people. So it's a logical conclusion. You have all the money in the world. Having me and my men join you for this feast, one, it wouldn't be much of an infringement upon you. Two, I would love to get to know you a little bit better. And three, it is part of the culture that, well, you have a responsibility to me to do this out of the heart of hospitality. And so he's like, no big deal. It's a normal, just ask. And so he sends his men ahead and they make this ask of Nabal. And we see in verses nine through 11, how Nabal responds and Nabal rejects him. He says, no. And he doesn't just uh, do that. He then adds literal insult to injury by, by insulting David and his family in verse 10. He said, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Acting in ignorance that, oh, I don't really know who he is. But what he's doing is he's belittling David and his family. Nabal's a fool. Literally, figuratively, metaphorically, any other characteristic you want to put in there, he's a fool. And he's acting a fool. Guys, the posture of our hearts propels the priorities and the perspective of our life. Nabal was a fool. That was a posture of his heart before God. He was rejecting not just David, but God. And his actions were evidenced in that. David gets this word in verse 13, and he is hot. He's angry. He is seeing more red than some of you might see on me after about five hours on the beach without sunscreen, okay? And he is literally out for blood. Literally. He says, get your swords, we're going. I'm not praying, I'm not asking anybody else what they might think. Again, remember, his Samuel had just died. I'm not waiting, I'm just reacting emotionally, passionately. Let's go. How dare you insult me and my dad and my mom? Have you felt like David felt sometime recently? Vigilante vengeance? I think all of us do sometimes. We might not pick up a sword and go to fight, but we might send a nasty text back. We might work, do something else in a way that is not God-honoring. The proper response to one sin is never another sin. David is absolutely on his way to commit heinous murder and sin. Two wrongs never make a right. Where in your life are you responding to sin with sin? David is raging. He was insulted. He was rejected. He was hungry. His family was insulted. He's grieving. He's got a lot of excuses for his actions, but none of them justify them. Where are you justifying your sinful actions and reactions to other people? Where are you reacting? David's reacting fleshly, not biblically. He's taking a step back after last week we saw him take a step forward. Where in your life are you reacting fleshly when you are wronged, when people act poorly against you? We see this blatant dichotomy emerging between Nabal, David, and soon-to-be Abigail but how they react to their present circumstances. Nabal's a fool. 
And the Bible contrasts a fool often sometimes with people, often with someone that's wise. A large chunk of the, the, the book Proverbs deals with this. The word fool or fools appears 99 times in the book of Proverbs. Make no mistake, the end game for a fool is destruction. The Bible teaches that very clearly. Because again, a fool is rejecting God. On a heart level, they're rejecting God. And that leads all of us, if we choose to reject God, to eternity apart from God in hell. Are you without a repentant heart and sin, without turning? If you continue blatantly rejecting God for your life without turning to God, it will end in devastation and destruction. How do you know if you're being a fool like Nabal, if you are a fool? Well, Proverbs describes it this way. It says a fool hates knowledge, biblical knowledge. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding God. A fool enjoys wicked schemes. These are all straight from Proverbs. A fool spurns discipline, 15.5. A fool speaks perversity. A fool is quick-tempered. A fool is proudly speaking. A fool mocks sin. A fool is deceitful. A foolish man is full of sexual immorality, and a foolish woman tears down her own house. Ultimately, though, a fool is not defined by what they do, but by the posture of their heart towards God. Again, it's a matter of the heart. In Psalm 14.1, you'll see this on the screen, this is how a fool is described. The fool says, in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. At the end of the day, the fool rejects God. Are you rejecting God today? You might be like, I'm not a fool. You might not self-describe yourself this way, but in the text, the scripture describes a fool as one who says, in their heart, there is no God. If you are saying today, there is no God, by biblical definition, the Bible would call you a fool. I pray that's not you, and I pray that if it is you, that today, that you would choose today to recognize the reality of the beauty of God and turn your heart towards God today. Don't be like Nabal. Where are you rejecting God this morning? The gift of God is a free gift of salvation for anyone to come at any time. You might have been living as a fool up until this very moment, but my prayer would be that God would grip your heart and turn you back towards him right now and that you would give your life to him. and Everything will change. The Bible is full of people who are transformed in the moment by the power of God who once were foolish and now are faithful. Saul to Paul. You can keep on going. Friends, as you look in your own hearts, how are you responding to the realities of our fallen world around you today? Because that often reveals the content of your heart. It's never too late, and I would beg you and implore you and ask you to move your heart from a posture of living as a fool to choosing to live a life of faith that only comes through Jesus Christ. Well, David was not a fool. He was being foolish here. What is being foolish? Being foolish means to temporarily take on the posture of a fool, especially on a heart level. And every single one of us, even if we've had a long existing relationship with the Lord, is absolutely susceptible to acting foolishly, amen? To acting sinfully. Do we see that in the life of David right here? A man after God's own heart is acting foolishly. He's acting quick-tempered. That's a characteristic of a fool. He's spurning discipline. 
He's acting and reacting emotionally, not disciplined. That's a characteristic of a fool. He's forgetting his understanding of God's love when last week he said, God's going to take care of you, Saul. And this week he says, God, I'm not going to wait on you. I'm going to do this. I will take vengeance into my own hands. And how many of us are like that? On Sunday or after small group, after time to work, God, you got this. A day later, you're like, I got this. It's a battle for control. It's a battle of trust. It's a battle for who ultimately sits on the throne of your heart. And it's a moment by moment thing. Who sits on your heart today? Where are you acting foolishly, friends? Christians act foolishly. Disciples act foolishly when they take their eyes off of God's sovereignty and their heart shifts away from Jesus Christ as their number one priority. Remember Peter in the garden before Jesus went to the cross and Jesus is getting arrested and saying, this is what has to happen. Peter takes out his knife and what does he do? He chops the ear off of a servant there out of emotion, brashly, rashly, because he was filled with rage. He didn't know what to do, so he just did something. Are you just doing something right now? Self-control. Allow the word of God to transform you and the heart of God to lead you and guide you. Where is the eyes, are the eyes of your heart focused right now? On yourself or on your Savior? Guys, past and present actions don't have to define us because God's grace covers us. Will you trust God with our fallenness and our fallibility and just confess today where we have acted foolish and repent and allow his grace and his mercy to cover us, to realign biblically of our hearts. I can't tell you the number of times and conversations that I have with people and that I have with myself because I am a fallible human being who acts foolishly far more often than I would like to admit. Praise God for his grace, amen. But the number of times that I talk to somebody and, and even a, a professing believer and they say, I'm just an angry person. You ever heard that one before? Said that? I'm just an independent person. I'm just a stubborn person. That's how God made me. That hurts my heart. Because in saying that what you are doing is you're denying and you're rejecting the biblical authority and sovereignty over your life because that's not God's best for you. God doesn't want you to be angry. He didn't create you. He didn't die for you so that you can live stubbornly and independently. In fact, the gospel means we must live dependently. We must live with humility. We must live with self-control. Like the fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? Anger, stubbornness, and independence? No. Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against this. So when we go, I'm just angry, what you're really saying is God doesn't have control over me in this area and I'm okay with that. I'm just independent means I'm okay living apart from God. Friends, why are you settling for something less than what God wants you? Why are you settling for living fleshly and responding fleshly to these realities of life when God has a better way for you? Where, why are you allowing the Holy Spirit to not have this part of you? And you're reveling in, celebrating even, your independence from God as opposed to submitting and surrendering your heart, your life, your words, and your actions under the authority of God. Where are you doing that? 
God didn't create you in to live this way forever. God sent his son to die for you, to break you free from the pattern of sin so that you can live a life of dependency and self-control and joy. That's only possible through the Holy Spirit. It's only possible through daily surrender under the authority of God's word. But we have a huge application of this text is the reality to understand, and this is a quote from somebody else, not named me, is that the best of men, the best of women are men and women at best, right? David is a man after God's own heart. But we have to understand the reality that he is susceptible to his flesh and responding to his flesh in big moments of his life. That's a pattern. It's a pattern in your life and mine. Somebody, I would never do that. The moment that we begin to think that we wouldn't respond and we wouldn't respond to someone offending us and saying, strap up, let's go, you're going to get it at my own hand, is the moment that we're probably going to fall victim to that at some point in our life. We are all susceptible to sin. We have to understand and understand that vulnerability in our life to cling desperately to the word of God in our life, to grow deeply and to not remove ourselves from biblical community like David did right here. He didn't ask anybody else. He just made a decision impulsively, fleshly and said, let's go. Where are you doing that in your life? This could easily be you and I. Where are you drifting from God's word? Remember, foolishness neglects God. David here is neglecting God. He's neglecting God's word. He's neglecting biblical community. Where are you doing that in your life right now? What decisions are you making that you haven't actually consulted the word of God about? What decisions are you making that you haven't consulted God the Holy Spirit about, prayed about, and then actually listened to him? What decisions in your life are you making that is outside the wisdom of biblical counsel? That's neglecting God. That's what David is doing here. Maybe we realign our hearts and bring them back under the authority of God as out of a heart that desires to become more and more like God. You might ask yourself, how did David move this quickly? How did he take such a big step back? What I see in this text is I see a heart shift. In chapter 24, he was focused on God, honoring God. And right here, culture began to creep in and become a higher priority to David in the moment than God. This cultural period is a full of honor-shame culture. If you, dis- if you shame me like Nabal shamed David, and Nabal was wrong. But again, two wrongs don't make a right. Nabal shamed David, and David said, how dare you do that to me in front of my men? I need to stand up for myself. I need to stand up for my family. You don't shame me and get away with it, or else my honor in front of my men will begin to dissipate. So I need to act. He allowed the context of culture to elevate over the priority of God's word in his life. He allowed earthly culture to triumph over eternal culture, and his actions demonstrated that. Where is that happening in your life right now that you're looking to our earthly culture as a higher priority over the context, over the truth of God's word? And we have a lot of opportunity. Politics, views on homosexuality, views on abortion, lots of hot topics. But where is your priority right now? 
earthly culture or God's word. David slipped for a moment to prioritizing earthly culture. No one insults my family and gets away with it. Who are you, Nabal? Saul, he's king. I have to submit to him. You're not. You're just a contemporary. How dare you do this? We aren't here to minimize the offense. Nabal was wrong. We are here to maximize the God's word and the gospel. Someone else's offense against you does not justify, rationalize, excuse your sin against them or others. We must repent. We must turn back. Friend, who have you sinned against out of a heart of flesh that you frankly need to apologize to, repent to, and trust God with? How do we strengthen our heart to live like God in these moments? Heart strengthening supplements, why? We maintain it. One, we maintain a biblical perspective and worldview. Understand the reality that people will sin against you, right? So that you prepare your heart to say, God, and in a prayerful posture, the prayer is the strongest weapon to living with a biblical perspective. Prepare my heart today to whatever comes my way that I will respond in grace and mercy even when people wrong me, offend me, sin against me. Strengthen me now so that I'm not caught off guard and respond to my flesh, but that I'm ready and prepared to respond. And then lower your expectations of others, especially non-believers. They will sin against you, right? Why are we shocked when the world sins against us? It's hard sometimes when believers sin against us, but praise God for his grace. Secondly, we need to assess honestly our own heart and take responsibility. We need to read Psalm 139 every single day and say, God, search me and know me and see you, reveal in my heart any way that isn't from you, and then lead me into a way everlasting. Know our own vulnerabilities. Be quicker to repent. A sign of spiritual maturity and growth in your life is a shrinking distance between the commitment of the offense and the confession of your sin. If you are quicker to repent now, it means you're growing more like God because you desire to be right vertically with God, restored, and right horizontally with others. The space should hopefully increase between the amounts of sin you're committing and decrease between the time that you commit to sin and the time that you confess your sin to God and repent and repent to others. Out of an overflow of a heart that wants to respond biblically and not fleshly to difficulty and hostility, out of an overflow of a heart that wants to demonstrate God, whose top priority is God, help other people see you and not me. Help my identity be anchored in you. In the name of my family, I trust you with it, and I want them to see you in it. I don't need to defend myself, God, because you've got this. And then finally, realign my perspective daily. David says this really interesting thing in verse 21. He says, I'm going to get Nabal. Why? Because he's returned to me evil for good. He's done harm to me when all I did was good for him. Friends, do you know how many times that God has done good to us? Spoiler alert, every time because he is good, right? How many times have you and I responded with evil to God? Many. We look at others and we forget that we see their speck and we forget our own plank. We need to understand our desperate need of our own great and God's grace in our life and how much evil we've done to God in response to the goodness he's done to us which should soften our heart as we then dispense his grace and act as a conduit and allow ourselves to be a conduit of his grace to others. 
Realign the perspective that we need God as much or more than the person that we are angry against that has sinned against us. And ask God to give us the strength to forgive them, love them, and cherish them, and point them to Jesus. Every one of us has lapses in faithfulness. Are you having that right now? One of David's biggest flaws is that he had removed himself from biblical community. He was, he was acting on his own. Many sins are committed by believers because in isolation. Isolation from God, isolation from the Holy Spirit, isolation from the church, small group, biblical community, God's word. Neglecting those things leads to not good things in your life. Are you doing that? Not just, I mean, step one is to show up and and open your heart to God. Be physically present, but also allow your heart to be present. When you come to small group, when you go to a discipleship group, are you just going through the motions if you get there at all? Or are you really opening my heart and going, I'm struggling with this wrong that my boss did to me or my friend did this to me last week. Brothers and sisters, can you pray for me right now? Because I need it. Because my flesh is raging. That's biblical community. Not just saying, can we have nice weather for the picnic later? Look, God hears those prayers too. Right? But it's life on life, flesh on flesh, heart for heart, the reality and the struggle. We need to open our lives up to others and say, I am weak, help. I'm wrestling, help. And we have brothers and sisters that want to link arms with us and get in God's word together and pray the reality of God's truth into our life and realign our perspective back in alignment with God's. Because we all wander, prone to wander, right? Lord, prone to leave the God I love. Praise God for his grace. But friends, I want to challenge you to make coming to church a priority. Make coming to small group or discipleship and make it a priority. Make opening God's word a priority. But not just coming, but opening your heart and opening your life to the reality of what is actually happening so that we can go to war together. Because a war is happening whether you want it or not. And we need each other. We need to be praying. Biblical prayer is the process of not just presenting my emotion, my feelings, and my needs, desires, and details to God, but it's a genuine heart posture of submission, of surrender to the sovereignty of God and the authority of God, and following that with a complete and total obedience to the direction of God. It's not just like, God, I'm feeling this, out of here. No, God wants you to hear how you're doing. But that it's a heart posture that goes, God, even in the pain, even in the grief, even in the struggle, even in the hurt, even in the misunderstanding, I will choose to trust in you. God, lead me in the way that you want me to go and I will follow wherever that goes, trusting that you will give me the strength to see me through. That's how the power of God is unleashed in your life. Proverbs says multiple times that there's wisdom in multitude of counselors. Are you going and getting biblical counsel? And ultimately the primary biblical counselor in your life is the Holy Spirit. Because there are times where I open my heart and praise God for the men in my life that God has put that I can open my heart and be real with. And I do. I texted some guys this morning. I just say, I got a heavy heart. I need help. Pray, please. But are you allowing yourself the vulnerability that leads to the victory? Or are you still trying to put up a nice face in front of others? And you go, I got it all. Guys, you, none of us have it all together. We all need Jesus. We need him desperately. 
to allow ourselves the vulnerability that leads to the victory that comes through Jesus Christ's death on Calvary and is lived out together in biblical community. Don't neglect that. Sometimes in biblical wise counselors, people that love you and know you will tell you a couple different things. Hey, in this scenario, you should go. Hey, in this scenario, you should stay. Praise God for that because you learn almost everything. You learn a lot of things through that. Ultimately, you need to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Friends, where in your life are you blowing through a, a yellow light or a red light and acting and reacting fleshly where God is calling you to respond biblically right now? No matter the offense committed against you, no matter the size of the obstacle, no matter the amount of grief, no matter this, that, where are you in your life needing to come back to a biblical perspective and live out biblical obedience? Don't be David right here. Be like Abigail. The big idea is wisdom focuses on God's preeminence in the face of man's foolishness and my distress. That God is bigger than the hurt. God is bigger than the pain. God is bigger than the obstacle. God is bigger. He's over it. He's sovereign in every single situation in your life. He's controlling the doctor's hands who are going to have surgery in your loved one. He's walking with you in grief and holding the tears in the bottle because he cares for you. He knows the concerns of your heart and says, my loved one, I still have you. I haven't forgotten you. He's taking the offense that has been committed against you and says, son or daughter, I love you and I will walk with you through this and I will cover you. Because when I'm wrong, the second decision in the heart level that we need to make today is to this, trust God wholeheartedly in the face of adversity. I need to choose today in my heart to trust God wholeheartedly. And all of us need to make that choice. Some bigger choices than others, but we need to choose to trust. And trust is not inaction, as we're going to see in this text. It is action. It is action. And it takes wisdom. And praise God for the wisdom of women. Amen? Because we're going to see Abigail work in a mighty way here. Because the king, David, the man after God's own heart, was living in a very wrong way. Now, verse 14, look with me at the text. Word gets to Abigail. One of them, young men, told Abigail and Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. He, and he, Nabal, he railed at them. He went off on them, is what that means. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. And they were a wall to us. He defended us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, verse 17 is key. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that, he, that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five, and five seas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came under, down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her and she met them. And as we read earlier, now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all this that this fellow was, has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that had belonged to him and he's returned me evil for good. God do so to me, the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of those of all who belong to him. And when Abigail saw David, she hurried and she got down from the donkey. She fell before David on her face and she bowed to the ground. What's interesting really right here, and we're going to read the rest of it in a second, is that 
Abigail was minding her own business. She's married to a fool, probably an arranged marriage. The guy had money, so her parents were probably like, hey, it's going to be good for our family if you go marry him. I don't care how he treats you. We're going to get money out of it. And now she's minding her own business, and a problem has landed on her doorstep because his servant comes and says, hey, danger is imminent. Because the servant can read the room and goes, David's not going to sit this idly by. And by the way, not just danger is imminent, but my life is on the line. The servant knows he's about to die if Abigail doesn't do anything. And he drops it on her lap out of the middle of nowhere, verse 17. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. And Abigail's like, I've just been hanging out here. What do you mean it's my problem? How many of us are like, this problem, this wrong, this, this reality, this consequence of the broken world landed in my lap. I was minding my own business, and out of nowhere, I got a phone call. Out of nowhere, my job told me information that I didn't want to hear. Out of nowhere, the diagnosis came. Out of nowhere, I discovered a lump. Out of nowhere, I was walking in grief because this happened. Out of nowhere, right? This is Abigail. Her life is about to change one way or another. And so how is she going to act? She chooses to trust God. She acts with a heart of humility. In verse 23, she threw her face down and bowed to the ground before David. We are called to be biblical peacemakers. She is lowering the temperature in the room. A, a great illustration, as I heard again this last week from someone uh, I've referenced before, but the question is, in biblical peacemaking, as living as a disciple, are you living as a thermostat or a thermometer? You know the difference? A thermometer just displays the temperature in the room. A thermostat can adjust it. David's hot, remember? He's hot. He's coming for blood. Abigail sees him, throws herself on the floor, bows her head, and all of a sudden the temperature in the room begins to dissipate because of her humility. Because she responded by trusting God and acting in humility. She could have been angry at David for coming at her men. It's her family that's going to die. Whether she cares about Nabal or not is a different question, but the servants, all the other, their lives are literally in her hands. And she responds with humility. She doesn't start to chew David out. She lowers the temperature in the room. Great biblical peacemaking principle. And then she does this. Verse 24, she fell on her face and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. So she prepared this feast. And she wrote out to David. She paid the debt that her husband was unwilling to pay. I only imagine where she got the food from. I don't know how you get, you know, how you get that much food that we see in verse 18 and one minute. I can only imagine Nabal's preparing a feast. She's raiding the pantry at the same time, right? She pays the debt that her husband owes. She didn't know it, but she had to pay it. And then she says, Put the bill on me. On me, on me alone. Not these servants, not these men that you want to kill. They didn't do anything. Put the guilt on me. Did she do anything wrong? No. But she stood in the gap. She stood in the gap. She's pointing us, in my opinion, to Jesus. What a peacemaker does. To take on a debt that we don't, personally, uh, that Jesus didn't know, to step in and to take on the guilt, the sin, the shame that was ours, that Jesus said, put it on me on the cross. She's pointing us to Jesus. 
Let not my Lord, verse 25, regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for his name is, so he is. She's basically saying, yet my husband's a fool. And folly is with him, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from, sa- and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil, my Lord, be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought you to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. We'll get to verse 28 in a second. But she's pointing us to the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus has given all of us, as Paul describes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This isn't just Abigail's responsibility, but it's ours. Paul tells us that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. If you're in Christ, not only are you a Christian, you're a disciple. You are called to be like Jesus. And this is how we're called to act. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So yes, Jesus reconciled us vertically to God on the cross, horizontally to each other through his blood, burial, and resurrection on the cross that has reconciled. He paid the price so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see sin, he sees holy, he sees perfection, the robes of Christ's righteousness. And now God has given us that ministry. It's not optional. It is a matter of obedience. It is a command. That what are we called to do? That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. I don't know why he chose you and me. God's sovereign, I'm not, he did it. We are ambassadors for Christ. That means we are speaking the words of Jesus. We are here with an eternal mission that it's not about us, but we carry the words and the motivation and the, and the motive of our Savior, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see Abigail in this moment pointing David back to God. Praise God for Abigail, amen? She had a choice. It's up to you what you choose to do. Verse 17, she chose action. She chose to get in. She did not have the privilege of a lot of time to consider this. She had to act. And many of you have to do that in the moment sometimes. Sometimes we have a lot of time. Sometimes we have no time. Every time our heart should be prepared to act like Jesus. She's trusting God. How so? She could have died. David, if he didn't like what she said, could have easily killed her. But she trusted God. You and I can trust God too. Here are four different truths that we can trust in the face of the adversity that we face today. Abigail was facing adversity. The the future of her family was in her hands. She didn't ask for it. She might not have even liked it, but she embraced it. The first is this, whatever adversity you're facing right now, you can trust in God's promises. Look with me at verse 28. Abigail now points David, the man after God's own heart, the one already ordained to be king back to God. Praise God. We need people in our life like this. Please forgive the trespasses of your servant for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Look at that promise. God will certainly make you a sure house, a strong house. He will build your kingdom. He will work. That is a promise that you can anchor in David. You don't have to worry about Nabal. This is a a very, very minuscule thing. But if you continue with blood guilt, it will harm you. If you commit these crimes, it will be held against you. If you do this, Saul will gain a foothold on you. Trust in the promise that God will build his house. Trust in the promise today, friends, that Jesus will build his church, amen? 
Whatever adversity comes, we can anchor in the truth of this promise that God will build his house. He'll build his family, and it's going to be a strong house. It's not going to be easy. It will face a lot of adversity. But what promises do you need to cling to today that no matter what you're facing, if God is for you, who can be against you, that God upholds you, that he provides for you, that he is your healer, that he is your defender? Trust in those promises today, friends, and whatever adversity is facing you, just like Abigail did, and then she pointed other people around her to that. Are you in the middle of your adversity? Every moment of adversity is a gospel opportunity. Abigail found herself in the midst of this adversity, and she took it to point uh, other people to Jesus Christ, to God. She used it as a gospel opportunity. She didn't cry about it. She didn't have time. She had to, and in a moment, she reacted by pointing people to God. Second thing uh, we can trust is God's purposes. His purpose. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you shall live, is fighting the battles of the Lord. Are your purposes today and how you're acting in the face of adversity, are you fighting for the Lord? Is your purpose God's purpose? Better stated, is God's purpose your purpose? Meaning, if your purpose is to glorify God, Whatever the adversity you're facing is, God can and will be glorified. Amen? So we need to realign our perspective on the purpose of God, that God even allows adversity, sometimes ordains it, often allows it, to point people to him so that he might receive the glory. We can trust in that. In the grief, we can trust that God will be glorified. In the, in the, when we are offended, when we are wronged, God will be glorified. But we need to turn our hearts to God, the per, make God's purpose our priority. Make sure you're fighting God's battles and not your own. David got off out of whack because he chose to fight his battle and not God's. God didn't ask him to go take out Nabal because he got rejected from the dinner party. Sounds a little, sounds a little silly, right? I got rejected from a dinner party and you said a bad thing about my family, so now I'm going to kill all of you. But how many of us, in retrospect, when we look at our actions against others, are like, really? I responded that brashly and that rashly because of that? That's insignificant. But in the moment, our flesh is raging, which is why we need to take time and reevaluate our heart. Third truth we can trust is God's provision, verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you, you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies she shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. Isn't that amazing? The provision of God's care, the provision of God's protection, the provision of, 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 of God just holding you in the bundle of his hand, that whatever your adversity you're facing, that you are held in the care of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ, today. That's a truth you can trust, that he will uphold you, Isaiah 41.10, that he will watch out for you, that he will look out for you, that he will wash over you. And fourth and finally, God's power. Verse 30, and when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince means leader over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs conscience of, for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord, taking vengeance for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Again, when you read this, understand little, little L Lord, is, she's referring to David, big L Lord, she's referring to Yahweh God. In all of this, verse 30 and on, she is pointing David to the power of God, that God will appoint you as leader. 
that God will do, verse the second word of, of this transla- ESV translation, verse 30, and when. It's not if, it's when. God is working. Even in the adversity, God is working in it. God will work through it, and he will continue to see you through it. He's going to do all the good that he has spoken concerning. Yes, you're facing adversity, but God is still working for his good. Do you see it? As his power and his promise, he's working for his good. When he has done all the good that he has spoken concerning you, he's given you a promise. I want you, David, to remember he's still working. You might not be able to see it, but I need you to realign your vision and your perspective onto God right now. Where do you need to do that, friends, right now? To trust in that truth. To trust in that promise. Friends, Abigail was used by God in a phenomenal way. Verse 32, David says, he relents. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, again, wisdom. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me, David himself needed to be restrained from David. We need to be saved from ourselves, don't we? Praise God for his grace. From hurting you, See, Abigail took her life into her own hands unless you had hurried and come to me, unless you had acted. She trusted God that if she did not act, it would have been different. It's like, it's like Esther. For such a time as this, God has put you here. For such a time as this, God's put you in your neighborhood today, friends. He's put you in your family today, friends. He's put you in your workplace today, friends, to when the Holy Spirit moves in your life to act, not later, but now. Pointing people to the word of God, the hope of God, the truth of God, the promises of God, and the power of God. That's wisdom. Wisdom is aligning our hearts. It's applying the knowledge that God has given us, right? It's applying the knowledge God gives us through his word and submitting our hearts and lives under the authority of his word and obeying his word in every action. It's street level discernment. Long story short, Nabal, God eventually takes Nabal out 10 days later with a heart attack. David then takes Abigail as his wife. There are a lot of reasons why Abigail had to not act. There was every reason she had to act because she trusted God. Where is God asking you to trust him in the face of adversity today? When you're wrong, will you trust him and will you act by clinging to the promises of God and pointing others to the power of God, the provision of God? God's building his church. He's building your home. I, I, I'm not the architect. I don't know why for a lot of different things. God doesn't do it my way. Praise God for him, amen? In this world, we have a lot of grief. We have a lot of pain. We have a lot of uncertainty, but this we know, that whatever situations you are walking through and walking in, God is bigger, that he's sovereign in them and he's preeminent over all of them, that he's working at ways to accomplish his purposes as Abigail was pointing to David. He will do his good, David. You don't need to do this. God's got it. He already knows it. He knows the offense. He knows your heart. And he holds you in the loving care of his righteous right hand, David. God used a woman whose name we don't really see many other times in Scripture. In the biggest moment, the biggest monologue of any woman in Scripture is right here. God used a woman of incredible faith to talk sense into the man man after God's own heart. We all need And David's heart was open and soft to receive it, amen? And God worked. So would you open your heart for God to speak in you, for God to speak through you, and maybe even for God to speak through others to you? Responding with a heart of humility, with a goal and a heart's desire to say, God, build your house, build my life however you would, in a way that brings you glory. Whatever wrong you're facing today, friends, 
Will you respond with wisdom and not foolishness? Would you close your eyes with me right now? Next 30 seconds or so, I just want you to ask God to reveal in your heart, where are you acting like a fool right now? Where are you rejecting God? In what situations, in what scenarios are you refusing to trust God? Are you refusing to turn to God? And I would ask that you would repent just like David did. When Abigail calmed him down and refocused through her humility, through her faith, by pointing her, him back to God, that you too would repent back to God and thank him for saving you through his grace and thank you for saving you from the consequences of the sinful action you were about to commit. Where are those moments that God's stirring in your heart that he's asking you in faith to act, to trust him and to act, to speak a loving word to a friend, taking personal risk in humility, speaking truth with love and trusting God with the outcome. That's what Abigail did. The servant came and said, the choice is up to you. And she acted. She stood in the gap, she embraced the risk, and she pointed people to God. Will you do that today? Will you open your own heart to the vulnerability and the reality and the susceptibility that you're probably acting fleshly in some ways? Ask God to reveal them and to repent of them and to realign today in view of God's word in submission to the authority of his word and the following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Let's take this next 30 seconds or so to do business with you and God. Father, we come to you in this moment in the reality of the adversity, the difficulty, and the hostility of this life. Life isn't fair. Our world has fallen and, and we are fallible. But God, thank you for your saving grace. Thank you that you're continuing to work and that you're good even when we make bad decisions. Thank you that you love us and you meet us literally where you are. You used your servant Abigail to meet David in the midst of his rebellious heart. And may we offer our lives to be used by you and to be met by you wherever we are, God, to become more like you, to point others to you because your promises are true, God. Your provision is true, God. Your plan is better than mine, God, even when I don't get it or understand it. God, help us to cling to your character in the crisis and to rest in your righteousness when it's just raining heavy. We thank, in the reality of your, we thank you for the reality of your beauty and the brokenness of this world. 
that you take our ashes and turn them into your beauty, that you take our brokenness and you restore it, that you are working for your glory now and you are working for your glory tomorrow and you make all things new. God, we love you and we look to you and I pray that every heart in this room would choose you in this moment, whether for the first time or again, to no longer reject you, but to run to you, to be saved by your amazing grace and to find shelter in your amazing care. In your name we pray, amen.